Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from our Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton, and BIV is once again seeking BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards. Nominations close July 30th, so go to BIV.com slash events for more information. And a range of innovative, disruptive technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. You can find out more September 13th at BIV's FinTech panel. We'll be focusing on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. More information is available at BIV.com slash events. So on today's show, we're going to be speaking to retail insiders Craig Patterson, who has been examining this ongoing resurgence of the retail scene along Granville Street in downtown Vancouver. The stretch, I recall, it used to be sprinkled with some questionable clubs, some adult shops, and a lot of, uh, I'd say, cheap retailers. But now it's moving to go upscale in recent years, while bars and clubs, they've been rethinking how and when they operate during the day. Now, his latest feature story explains how the downtown entertainment district is managing this ongoing facelift, and he's going to join us in just a few moments. And later on, do businesses need to rethink how they address customers? Should customer service representatives emphasize the word I instead of we when assisting? Well, SFU marketing professor Brent McFerrin will break down a recently published study examining how businesses should really be engaging with their clients. First, here is Retail Insider's Craig Patterson. So we all know that the legalization of recreational cannabis, it's approaching very quickly. October 17th maybe can't come soon enough for many people out there. And we also wonder how quickly BC is on the case. Is it moving fast enough to ensure a smooth transition, or does it risk falling behind other provinces? Joining us today to break it all down is Dan Sutton. He is the CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Glad to be here. So BC government unveiled some new rules last week, and we can dive into it as well. But one of the curious things here, and I know you've got an interesting perspective on this, is that we have this so-called cannabis marketing license now. Um, One of the big question marks I think you had is how are you supposed to market your own products with a sticker? Is this going to be helpful for producers like yourself with regards to getting your product out there, not necessarily directly to consumers, but to the decision makers, people within the retail industry to market your own products going forward? So first of all, we haven't had a ton of time to digest these new regs, and they are written in a relatively interpretive way. So the the actual implications of this cannabis marketing license, I think, are still yet to be seen, and we're really looking forward to further clarification on that aspect of these regulations and a variety of other aspects of these regulations. Um, But it does look as though that in congruency with the federal regulations that have been set out, uh, you know, marketing in areas that are age restricted, marketing in in sort of sensitive channels will give producers a better opportunity to get the word out and get their voice out there. But ultimately, for producers, especially of the scale of Tantalus Labs and other sort of more craft oriented producers, the best marketing tool it seems in the cannabis industry, even today on the black market, continues to be word of mouth. So, good solid products, good stories behind your team, those are the things that hopefully users should be looking for uh, when they make a cannabis purchase decision. 
Is that what you expect once we have legalization? People out there, maybe they know Tantalus Labs, they know the products, and so that maybe gives the government more reason to perhaps purchase more, make sure it's available in liquor stores or sorry, not liquor stores, cannabis stores. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is really interesting because there's a sort of lag effect between consumer demand and the actions of the of the British Columbia Liquor Distribution Board and then the cannabis office within that office. So even if our products are highly desired, we're still going to be negotiating with this monopoly distributor. And if we can't come to terms that allow them a relatively substantial margin, an exceedingly substantial margin, uh, it's going to be tough to be able to uh, compete as a craft producer. So this license here, it's a unique thing in British Columbia. Other provinces haven't come out with that yet. And I think there were a lot of question marks. We discussed a report that you guys put out a few months ago earlier about whether BC is a little bit behind the curve when it comes to other provinces. I'm wondering, are we seeing signals that BC is catching up? Are you still concerned right now with regards to where BC is positioned versus other jurisdictions across the country? I mean, with the exception of the territories, BC is definitely the the most behind in terms of developing cannabis regulations. And I think it's a, partly a function of politics. There have been some really critical hot button issues around money laundering, housing crises, you know, pipelines. And I, I understand why cannabis has kind of been kicked down the road as a bit of a lower social priority. The problem with that reasoning is, is that cannabis really does have the capacity to be one of the probably top three largest industries in the province uh, once it's regulated and legalized. And the actions that we take now will lay the foundation for that industry's operations and growth over the next five years. So it's it's hard in in politics and in media. You want to be talking about the things that are going on right now, but we need to make these decisions. We need to build this legislation with the five-year future in mind, uh, which is just unfortunately a little bit longer than the political life cycle of, of most uh, politicians and bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. What impact would you say BC sort of lagging behind has had on the industry? Well, there's a substantial lack of clarity around licensing for retailers. And this is a concern that I'm hearing from both existing dispensary operators and then new uh, entrants that want to be in the cannabis retail marketplace. Even with these new, uh, this new announcement that came out a couple of weeks ago, we still aren't seeing uh, really definitive licensing standards, how people can go and apply. Uh, that was said you know, originally to be available in the spring. We've clearly missed that deadline. And so they've said, you know, hopefully by the end of summer, before October, 17th. It just doesn't give private retailers a lot of time to be able to maneuver, to be able to acquire leases, do renovations. All of these things take a substantial amount of time in that retail storefront uh, market. And so it does look as though the, the British Columbian public liquor stores, they will have a substantial advantage relative to private retailers at the outset. Well, going forward, I mean, are there maybe policy goals that you would push the government to have in mind? I mean, I just think about how close October 17th really is. As much as we're basking in the summer weather right now, it's going to creep on us very, very quickly. Oh, I I think it's it's we're still way behind the eight ball to have anything functioning on that date. And and even wow. in the public liquor stores and their, their prescribed e-commerce platform, that's going to come a bit later on at this point. That's what I anticipate. Um, but right now the cannabis industry black market is probably more entrenched in British Columbia than any other province in Canada. And what the black market has done a very effective job of is targeting users with various different uh, purchase preferences. If you want to buy it from a retailer, you can go to a dispensary. If you want it delivered to you, there's a variety of black market delivery services that can have 
really great cannabis products to your door in a completely unregulated way in sort of 40 minutes at any any place in this city. Uh, if you prefer to buy in larger quantity but still do it from your home, there are mail order marketplaces that you can buy from today. And just having a handful of relatively small handful of stores, uh, you know, out in the in this calendar year to then compete with all of those different diversified channels, I think it's very unlikely that we'll make a substantial impact in that black market, which ultimately is the goal of the British Columbian government and the goal of the Canadian government as well. Mm-hmm. There's so much nuance here. There's three tiers of government regulations, some of which are still being worked out at the municipal and provincial levels. Do you think, Dan, the general public has a good sense of what's going to happen after October 17th and what they're going to be able to do? I think the government doesn't really know. The producers and the retailers <laughs> don't really know. So the end user definitely doesn't really know. Um, but in this monopoly distribution platform that we've set up in British Columbia, we have to recognize that it's an experiment. It's never been attempted before in any other cannabis market. And the success of the cannabis markets in, say, Washington State is an example where they were able to erode the market share of the black market uh, by about 70% within sort of 18 months. That really relied on letting entrepreneurs go out and figure out these problems. Retailers doing creative retail experiences, you know, interesting delivery services that were, were tailored to the needs of their users, and then abundant producers, a lot of different producers that were able to come and meet the market demand in terms of production. That That is certainly not true in BC. We have a very small amount of provincial producers, and to date, those pr- provincial producers have not been prioritized at all in these uh, distribution negotiations, it seems as though the distributor would far prefer to deal with large, volume-oriented, low-cost producers. And most of those are based, unfortunately, out of Ontario with some in other provinces like Alberta. And so I, I worry that the British Columbian cannabis entrepreneur is at a significant disadvantage and that the province isn't really paying much attention to how to facilitate them, which ultimately is what our users want. That's what people want to buy in this province is good British Columbian cannabis. And without the ability to do that, there's a huge incentive to just stick with your black market connection. That said, you bring up the black market connection, and one of the new uh, details that we have from the government is with regards to whether or not these operators of illegal dispensaries will be able to apply for retail licenses. They will. That's what the government has confirmed. What do you make of that particular decision? Because there's a lot of questions, marks, especially here in the city of Vancouver, about where these dispensaries go for forward from here. I, I also wonder if... This is even going to be able to stamp out the uh, proliferation of the dispensaries here in Vancouver. Right. So I think it's pretty clear that dispensaries that are not operating under a provincial license and accessing product from a quality assured supply chain will not be allowed to continue. Uh, and, and how that enforcement actually plays out is going to be a really interesting part of this legislation. But it is true that there are dispensary operators that have been acting in a legal gray zone, but they still know a ton about cannabis. They're smart, they're committed, they want to be in this business for the long term. And for those high quality operators, I think it's really positive that we are encouraging them to go through a licensing process to qualify that they have the security credentials and the supply chain management skills to be able to actually operate in this business. Uh, the, the, the problem is with all of the ones that likely won't make the cut and where are they going to go? Are they just going to shutter their shops and go get a job uh, you know, in real estate or in the insurance business? Hard to know. And so I think it really comes down to the, the execution on enforcement of how we're actually going to encourage a legal quality assured supply chain, which is I think what most users in British Columbia absolutely want. 
I'm curious too, Dan, for licensed BC producers, if they're not able to get in with the liquor distribution board and figure out, okay, well, our products are going to be part of that legal supply chain here in the province. What are the options then? Do you look to other provinces, other governments to secure contracts? What's going to happen? Absolutely. So there are other provinces that are are facilitating smaller producers that have to focus on quality differentiation and ergo uh, smaller margins for the distributor. Uh, and, and those conversations are ongoing, certainly in our office. It's, it seems as though there are other provinces that are, are, they understand that there is going to be segmentation in the retail market and that some users want to buy cannabis that has a deep story behind it that's relatively rare. Uh, and, and that's certainly not what we're what we're seeing with the with the British Columbian distributor, but it's also important to note that there's an existing medical market that allows firms like myself to distribute direct to patient today. That market is going to continue to thrive, and and sure there will be some users that prefer the convenience of retail, but there are patients that are reliant on these on these shipments that come through an e-commerce platform, and that allows operators, uh, producers to, to capture their full margin. The other side of this that I think, especially the British Columbian distribution board, but also distribution boards across Canada are significantly discounting is that it is feasible for Canadian producers to export cannabis. Uh, we've been having conversations in the European markets, you know, such as, as Germany, there's 80 million people in Germany and they've just opened up a medical cannabis marketplace with a substantial amount of pent up demand. If you look at Europe across the board, that's sort of almost 500 million people. And there are no other producers on earth aside from Canadian producers that can meet the standards to those importation regulations. And so as a result, I think the the distributors are really discounting the reality that there are other channels for these producers and that they really need to be facilitating, uh, you know, convenient and low margin distribution for cannabis companies in order to be competitive. Well, maybe we'll leave off with this because I still think the BC is kind of a unique, you know, situation here. I think, you know, most people would agree. But uh, with regards to the retail situation, we're going to have this, you know, hybrid model with both private and public retail. And apparently there's not going to be a cap on the number of retail stores. We see a lot of big issues going on in Ontario right now as there's a, a rather small cap, at least at this moment. What do you think this means just for letting the market decide with regards to how many shops, retail outlets can be supported within this population? It's going to be really slow and steady. And I mean, if when Vancouver was still in the sort of wild west days of a lack of dispensary regulation and a lack of dispensary enforcement, we peaked out at about 170 dispensaries in this city. The likelihood that those that quantity of retailers exists in the province in the next two years, I think is very, very low. So as a result, I think it's going to be incremental. We're going to have a handful of stores. Those stores are going to have a huge amount of traffic, likely lineups, certainly supply problems. And we're going to need to figure out how to iterate these regulations to make it more functional for for producers to get into those stores. Um, But ultimately, it's going to be slow and steady, and there's going to be a substantial amount of headaches to come. Excellent. Dan, always great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Haley, you go into a store. Do you have any preference as to how you're greeted by any chance? 
A nice hello, a, a nice warm hello. voice, okay. friendliness. But aside from that, I think that's probably it. Well, you know, there's a new study that's published in the Journal of Marketing Research, and it's examining the way that businesses have been approaching customers and maybe just the way that we use pronouns to a hmm. certain degree. And it's making us reconsider a lot of the traditional training practices that a lot of these companies have been using Joining us today is the author of that study. It's Brent McFerrin. He's an associate professor at the Beattie School of Business at Simon Fraser University. Brent, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive into your study here, maybe let's set the scene for people here. I mean, how do businesses, or at least a lot of businesses, train their representatives to address customers when they walk into a store? Okay, so um, what we looked at was uh, was communication across uh, across a variety of channels, and particularly these days, um, a lot a lot of customers prefer about two thirds prefer to actually speak digitally, either text chat, email, um, and the like. And in that in that speaking in that in that language usage, we lose a lot of the nonverbal um, cues that that we gain when we are in a face to face context. And and if we look at how how the language it's being used. Um, over the phone or online, it seems to mirror the the training practices that that are even done in face to face, and that would sound like things like um, a lot of usage of we. Um, so we can find that product for you rather than I can find that product. Uh, if we can provide assistance instead of if I can provide assistance. So a lot of usage of we, like we the firm, and a lot of usage of you, the customer, and that's kind of consistent with the belief that uh, being customer-centric is a good thing. And so relative to natural English, we see far more usage of, of, of we pronouns um, and and far more usage of you, uh, the customer, than, than would be normal in, in the English, uh, in English discourse. And so when you guys take a look at everything here, because you guys went and studied this through like field tests as well as, you know, in-house sort of examinations, but tell us a little bit about what you were testing and what you actually found out. So what we were interesting, interested in really is, is this optimal, right? So given that firm language with, with a high usage of, of, of we's and you's, given that's so different from how uh, people speak normally, yet that's baked into training manuals, is, is that optimal? Um, and we had some reasons to, to think that, that it wasn't. And what we did is conduct a number of studies uh, using different methods. We, we would email firms and then look for their responses. We would ask people with CSR training to sort of pr- pr- um, to, to tell us which would be the preferred wording. And, and kind of across the board, firms think, and even customers think, that that, that firm language is, 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 is best. Um, and then what we did was manipulate that firm language uh, to swap out, you know, the we's for I's is an easy example, right? So instead of we can offer a discount today, I can offer a discount today, that can be changed without altering the meaning. We swapped out those and then randomly assigned people to conditions and saw which, you know, which performed better in terms of customers' purchase intentions and satisfaction with the interaction. And, and we found the opposite, in other words. We found that, that the I's far outperform the we's and the usage of you is, is basically um, uh, uh, useless in effect, that, that there is no point in speaking about the customer when in a one-to-one interaction, it's obvious who the customer is. There is no other you to, to be spoken about. That's so interesting. Why, Brent, do you think that I language tends to be more effective than we language? 
So we spent a lot of time looking at that, um, and and what it what we find, and, and and I think what makes some sense after um, after doing the work certainly is that when someone says I, it conveys two things: it conveys empathy to a greater degree, um, and it also conveys a sense of agency, like it that that, that the the CSR uh, representative is actually going to act on your behalf. So you know, maybe let me give you an example. You know, you're on the phone as a customer, you hear, yeah, we'll look into that, or you hear, I will look into that. <laughs> as a customer, hearing that I will look into that gives me a greater sense of confidence that it will be looked into, right? Sure. That someone is actually taking agency for that. Um, and then similar in a, in a one-to-one interaction, someone using a lot of eyes, um, it conveys empathy. And, and that goes back to some of the literature and counseling. Um, we're hesitant in a lot of scenarios to use I because we think that it sounds narcissistic. Um, there's other you know, negative connotations. We don't like people who talk about themselves all the time. And that may be true in a group setting if you're sort of standing in front of a podium speaking to, to hundreds or thousands of people. But in a one-to-one interaction, hearing that I as a customer gives you a sense that the firm agent cares about you and that he or she is acting on your behalf and is actually going to get stuff done um, when you, inf- you, you, you reached out to the firm because you had some complaint or you had some question. So if you isn't as useful as maybe we once thought, I mean, is, is there a different way that we could be addressing customers if you isn't ideal? So what we find generally is that, you know, again, in that one-to-one interaction, it's obvious who the you is, right? There is no customer but the customer in that scenario. We don't usually find that the you is harmful. So for example, for example, we can find that product or we can find that product for you. In our testing, those perform relatively equally. Where we do see some downside, though, is um, sometimes the referencing the customer can, 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 can be a little bit negative. So I'll give you an example. Sorry, your product was defective or sorry, the product was defective. Right, so hearing your product is defective implies a little bit of a blame mm-hmm. or responsibility on the customer, and so we do see that occasionally it can it can start to you know present a little bit of a blame game where a customer will say oh, you told me this, and and then the firm agent replies with well, I'm sorry your product isn't working, uh, something like that can 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 start to to create a little bit of friction um, in that back and forth. But generally, you know, I I, I, I I'm not going to make any hard statements that that reference referencing the customer is bad. It's just generally, um, in most of our scenarios, it, it provides no benefit. And, and, and what's beautiful about it is most of the time it can just be omitted without changing the language, right? We're glad that this purchase, we're glad that your purchase, okay? The, the, the meaning hasn't changed um, in either of those. And, and, and so it, it's, uh, it, it just seems like something that's trained that's, that's uh, uh, unnecessary, but not yeah. necessarily harmful. Yeah, and it seems like such a subtle difference, but can clearly have a, a fairly significant impact potentially on how customers feel about a company or a brand or how their complaints are handled. I'm curious whether it's it, it's possible for businesses to maybe place an ROI on changing their manuals or changing their scripts and whether this is something companies may choose to change if there's enough significance there to warrant changing this. What are your thoughts? Um, we, we, what we do is we do some econometric analyses in, uh, in, in one of our studies and we, we are able to, to, to sort of quantify the lift, um, you know, hesitate to make, uh, to make strong claims on this because that's based on one relatively large firm, but still just one firm. And what we find is that 
if, if firms do increase the usage of their eye, um, what we find is uh, about a 10% increase usage in, in eyes. So not even changing all of them, just some of them, uh, corresponded to a 0.8% increase in, in purchase volume, kind of controlling for everything else uh, 90 days later. So what we can see is, you know, companies can see sales lift of upwards of, of 5% based on that data, you know, if you were to, if you were to really change the language. And again, that's, you know, that's in our context and that was, that was email. Um, but all that's doing is moving the usage of, of eyes closer to natural language. And we're not even suggesting wholesale changes here. Um, uh, given that firm language is so far off of, of, of kind of English language baselines, even if half of them or a third of them were changed, it would still be a vast sort of uh, switch in practice from how companies are doing business, but would still not even, not even begin to, to seem weird to customers um, in the sense that it would be deviating from, uh, from, from kind of how people normally speak in, in English discourse. Just regarding maybe applications for different businesses, I, I think about the Amazon effect that's taking place across pretty much the globe where you see a lot of these smaller shops that they have to compete with these big giants. Do you think there's room for them to take a look at what the study found and they can apply in their day-to-day that maybe doesn't quite translate the same way if you're just pointing and clicking through your own shopping experience? So, you know, what I'd say to that is... Um, if, if I'm a smaller firm, I, I really need to create that, that uh, one-to-one customer experience, okay, and, and really try to convey that I care about my customers to a greater degree. And we know, and, and indeed we show in this research, but others have shown elsewhere, that making your customer feel like, uh, as an agent, that you care about him or her, um, and that you're acting and you're really trying and putting forth a, a strong effort on his or her behalf uh, those are positive things, right? That we know that's going to uh, relate strongly to positive outcomes. Uh, so any way that a that a small firm can convey you know, greater empathy or agency, um, we know is going to have positive effects on how the customer views them and repurchases and the like. Uh, I'd also flip what you said and say, as we as we increase the the volume of purchases we make with large retailers like Amazon they have a challenge to kind of create um, a sense among their customers that they're not just dealing with faceless robots, right? That, that as a customer, when you reach out to a large entity, that you are not a number. Um, and, and, and given that we're increasingly reaching out to those firms uh, with just with text chats and with emails where we lose a lot of the other cues, there's, there's room in here as well for, for large firms to maybe create some of that uh, sense of uh, that, that, that their staff care a little bit more about the customers uh, than, than they would otherwise. Well, I'll tell you what, Brent, maybe I'm going to go against a little bit of what you found in the study here, and I'm going to cap off the interview by saying that you were a great guest today. <laughs> Thank you. I'm delighted to spend some time with you both. <laughs> Excellent. That's Brent McFerrin. He's an associate professor at the Beatty School of Business at Simon Fraser University. That's Brent McFerrin. He's an associate professor at the Beatty School of Business at Simon Fraser University. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. You can find us, subscribe to us, review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. Thanks again for listening. 